Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. Leaders, when you are creating a company, be very honest in the narrative of why this company exists. This is also part of, you know, part of the solutions when it comes to a cultural problem. We always bring it back to the basics. Start understanding why you have created this business in the first place. What kind of people do you want working for you? What kind of behaviors do you desire to see in the company? Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 108. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sophie Teen. Sophie is an award-winning human resources and diversity and inclusion professional. From being featured on the Women in Fentech Power List since 2017 and the first HR professional to win the standout spot, she's also widely recognized for her innovative influence on how human resources works in technology, companies, and startups. She now works with companies around the world as an advisor. Sophie, I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get um, get started. Yeah, I'm excited as well. And um, I just found out right before we started recording that you're in the UK. I've got some kids over there. We'll touch on that a little bit later. But I think one of the things that I was um, you know, most excited about when I first learned of the opportunity to invite you on the show was the fact that you have really distinguished yourself in the area of culture. And, you know, when we talk about culture, that's something that's actually very interesting to me because in all honesty, um, my background, for all my listeners know that I'm a former school leader. And so I understand culture initially, at least from nonprofits and schools, but it really reflects on so many different areas uh, of work, for-profit, nonprofit, but it's oftentimes misunderstood and it's oftentimes underappreciated, undervalued. And oftentimes what I find the most is that people only start to address it when they realize that there's a problem. And so my first question for you is, who's responsible for a company culture? How does it develop? Who's responsible for it? And you know, if you want to unpack that a little bit more, what are some strategies that you find are most useful for leaders? I'm, I'm going to make that assumption here. I probably shouldn't even say that. But for people, let's call it, in creating the culture, what should they be focusing on to ensure that it's successful. Wow, that is definitely a lot to unpack there. First, first things first, you're absolutely right. I love the sentiment of, you know, the fact that culture is highly, highly misunderstood. There's a huge misperception of who is even responsible for it. So to answer your first question, I truly believe, as also what I've written in the book as well, is that Culture is a responsibility of everybody in the company. However, there is one person that instigates a bad culture versus a good culture, and that is the founder or the leader of the very company. In a lot of the research that I've done, including the experience that I've had working, you know, first front row seats, working as a HR leader, sitting side by side with CEOs and founders, trying to build a culture of a company, it is evident, it's been evident to me that the leaders or the CEO is fully responsible of first making sure that they know exactly what they want in terms of the culture they want to build for a company. Whenever there is any misunderstandings, 
it always feels like there's a misalignment. And this is where, you know, a toxicity of a culture starts to develop because it's oftentimes comes from misunderstandings or gaps. And so first things first, leaders of a company, you know, you may be in the C-suite right now, you may be, you know, a manager in the company, you may be a senior manager and you very well may be a CEO of the founder of the company. And you definitely need to understand exactly what type of culture you're trying to build first. And you're absolutely right on the comment around, you know, ever so often people think that a culture needs to be fixed when there is a problem. And so they don't think far ahead, or if not, they don't have enough forethought to think about what kind of company I want to build in the first place, right? And culture is simply a translation of the behaviors of the people that actually live and breathe um, in the company. So it's really important to get that basic right. Okay, wow. Yeah, so I do want to come back to your book because I know you referenced it, but I did not include it in my intro. So we have to unpack that a little bit more. Let's, so, so let me summarize, if I may, um, you know, as you mentioned, and I think in my, in my question, I kind of alluded to it also, that oftentimes we have this reactive approach to culture, meaning to say we start to sense that there's a problem, people are unhappy, something's not quite working, and then we go, oh my, I got to work on this. Because oftentimes, and this really speaks to a lot of things. I mean, I wrote my book, my book, Becoming the New Boss, to help new leaders get off the ground, you know, hit the ground running and, and, and enjoy sustained success. And a lot of what I focus on are, is relationship building, is, is having you know, a vision for where you want your leadership to go from the outset and building and cultivating relationships around it so that you have the, the wherewithal to succeed long-term. Long and in your response, what I'm hearing, Sophie, is that you know, leaders may really run with their, with their concept. They may be running with their widget, their, their, their product, whatever it is, their service, whatever it is that they're trying to put out into the marketplace. And they're so super focused on getting that going and seeing is, is it going to be successful and, of course, leveraging whatever it needs to do that, that they don't necessarily place sufficient uh, or significant time, energy, et cetera, in developing the human, relational, cultural aspects of their business because they don't see the concrete value in doing so from the outset. Is that something that you have noticed as well? Do you see it differently? And if you do, in fact, see it similarly, what is your advice to people who really do want to, they, they want to, you know, just want to hit the ground running. They just want to, you know, sort of get this thing going. And you're saying, no, not so fast, right? Let's do this culture piece as well. How, how do you help people sort of balance that? Yeah, that's an absolutely great question. I think this points out to the fact that a lot of, you know, a, a lot of leaders, in fact, you know, going back to the question that you've asked earlier, when there's a problem, who comes in to fix the problem? And you all, you always hear that um, CEOs or founders or leadership reaches out to a HR person or a people leader to ask them to, you know, come and join the company and fix the problem. Because here's where the misperception is, right? It, it always feels like it's HR's responsibility to fix a culture. But when a culture is great, I'm sure you've heard of this before, but when a culture is great, it's all the founder or the CEO's credit, right? But when a culture is bad, it's always HR's fault. So I think this is where we really need to kind of unpack here. I think first things first, you know, when, when there is a problem, we need to first identify 
we first need to identify what is the environment we're currently in. Remember, culture is supposed to be seen as a touch and feel of what you what you what you see in the company, how your employees react to certain situations, emotionally or non-emotionally, even um, how you see leaders react to different decisions that they're making, the impacts that carries with it. So it's really important to recognize that. Culture cannot evolve and culture cannot be sustained on its own without the hard work and collaboration of each and every person in the company. So if we were to say, without a transparent or honest culture, your product may be stunted or may have delays as it reaches out in the market. If we're able to relate the impact between culture and how much revenue per se, or um, how fast your product is going to hit the market, if we're able to create this kind of correlationship, I think leaders in a company will start to realize that there is work to be done here rather than just taking it for granted. Like you said, you know, they often don't even realize that there is a culture problem until there is something to fix that they start maybe hearing. Um, they might hear feedback from the outside that people are not willing to join the company because of a certain behavior. And that's a very true telling sign of the culture um, being being in trouble. So let's let's unpack that just a little bit more, uh, if we can, Sophie. I'd I'd like to hit on the proactive side first, and then get your reactive piece as well. Meaning to say, so other than hiring an HR person, which again is not the primary person necessarily responsible for culture, but certainly would have their antennas up on a more regular basis, probably, to you know what the culture looks like and and how to make sure that it stays healthy and whatnot. But outside of that. What do you advise leaders to do, ideally from day one, in order to ensure that they have a positive culture? And then when we're done, like I said, I'd like to hear about your fixes. And you could weave this into one answer. Or we could separate them. How would you, how do, how do you kind of like, maybe not helicopter in, but how do you come in and help companies that are struggling with a broken culture to rebound, you know, to repair it and, and really set themselves on a better course moving forward? Yeah, sounds good. So first things first with leaders, what can they do almost immediately to kind of make sure that they're creating a great culture? And that is first and foremost, start recognizing the environment around you. A first true telling sign of a problem in a culture is when the leaders themselves start to realize that the environment that they're working in is no longer as enjoyable or as comfortable as it used to be. So that's the first sign to tell you that something's wrong, something needs to be looked at there is a problem here that needs to be addressed. Now, the more and the sooner we actually react to these problems, even however small or minute, minor they are, the faster it is for you to bridge those gaps before it becomes this ripple effect that actually affects every single person in the company. It may very well start from you know, management and then eventually kind of lead into impacting every single person in the company. Your second part of question around what is it that I normally do as a HR consultant to get parachuted in into a company? And you're very right. There are certain situations where I'm being called to join a company on a very urgent basis to solve this problem. Now, when I go into a company, I definitely do not position myself as the fixer. Rather, I position myself as the person that will run workshops to help us identify where the root causes are and then fix the problem together. And I think this is one of the best approach that I've seen so far. It's because, again, it's taking that misperception far, far away from 
from leaders in the company thinking that there's one person out there that is their job to fix a cultural problem in their company. It should it should never be a shortcut like this. So you know, as part of my as part of my consulting, what I do is I try to run values and culture workshops. We do workshops on identifying where some of the people problems are. As you can imagine, culture usually culture problems stems from people problems. It could be tech conflict. It could be any form of tension. It could be any form of behavioral problems. And so, as we start to identify them, we're able to find solutions to solve these problems, either in a way where it is creating a more robust process or creating more platforms for employees to raise their opinion. For example, it might be a cultural issue where people are afraid of giving feedback. And so therefore there's this fear mongering happening in a, in, in a company. I'm sure you've seen that before. So really there are two ways of looking at this. One is leaders definitely need to create as much and as early as possible, the awareness of where the problems are. On the other hand, if they were to ever reach out to someone to help them solve the problem, let's make sure they're equally involved as well and not just palm this problem off to the other person. So I want to take that. I love the answer, by the way. I want to take it one step further back to the to day one, or maybe even before day one, when the company is still in conception. And the question mm. is, so you're focused, your answer, I heard, Sophie, focusing on awareness of a problem and how to deal with it and all of that. And that's obviously very important. But what could leaders do before they've hired people, or maybe just as they're hiring people, to ensure as much as possible that they never get to a place where the culture mm. goes off the rails in the first place. Sounds good. Leaders, when you are creating a company, be very honest in the narrative of why this company exists. This is also part of, you know, part of the solutions when it comes to a cultural problem. We always bring it back to the basics. Start understanding why you have created this business in the first place. What kind of people do you want working for you? What kind of behaviors do you desire to see in the company? And as you're able to pull them all together, you should be able to start understanding this is the culture that you want to build in the company. And as the journey goes on, I'm sure as a founder, entrepreneur, you're going to be bombarded with different kinds of distractions. There will be investment, there will be investor um, uh, conflict or even pressure for you to grow the company faster than you can actually maintain it. All of these things are part and parcel as part of the journey of being an entrepreneur and a founder, but never, never lose track of the company you wanted to build in the first place. And many, many times I've seen situations where founders have actually lost track and they you know in in a lot of even conversations that i have i kid you not they miss the company that they first built and so this is really important to make sure that they stay honest in this journey okay that's really great and um, because you're so involved as my understanding at least with startups in particular i'm just wondering if you think that there's any real distinction between every in, in terms of everything we've been discussing until now whether the environment is that of a startup or one of a more established company, other than, of course, perhaps the amount of people involved? I think there is definitely a distinct, uh, distinctive difference. I think you're absolutely right. Not just the amount of people that's involved. We're talking about, you know, ever so often we tend to compare a startup with a more established um, firm is the fact that their headcount is either 5,000 or 50. I think in reality, a startup just, just has this environment where 
there are less red tapes around. And so therefore the involvement of a company is a lot more rapid. It's because they're a lot more willing to kind of go, okay, you know, we're willing to make mistakes and very quickly learn from these mistakes and then make sure we don't live them again. Whereas in an established environment, they've probably already learned these mistakes. So therefore they're a lot more concrete and mature in the way that they're operating their business. But equally in, on both sides, while they must, they still are distinctively different from how they operate their business, from a cultural point of view, it should very much still be the same. If a company very much decides or the leaders of a company decide that an honest and feedback culture is what they believe in, that is going to strengthen both the product that they put on the market and to keep the employees happy in the company that they work for, then that is an honest and transparent culture that they need to build, regardless of the headcount size. Okay. So if you're going in there and you're doing your diagnostics and Sophie to the rescue, just jumping off her parachute to land in and, and, and <laughs> save the day. What are the three things that you're looking for? I, I, it might be five, it might be two, I don't know, but I'm using three because it's a common a common number here. What would be like around three things that you would say, these are the three indicators right off the bat, that things are either really in a good place or if that number is low, for example, really in a bad place. Like what are you looking for most to, to make your determinations right off the bat? Yeah. So the first thing we would actually absolutely need to look at is whether or not the behaviors that the employees are showing are actually acceptable. Is this desirable? So the behaviors are the first indicators. Second indicator. So I'm sorry, just to, be, just to better just to better understand when you say behaviors. Yes. What well, give yes. give a couple of examples, please. Sure. So behaviors um, in this case as indicators would be, for example, um, if. If a, if a manager is requesting feedback from uh, from an employee, is this employee willing to give feedback to the manager? So that's a true indicator of whether or not there is fear in the company or there is a good enough or robust enough feedback loop. So remember, when we are talking about culture, it really is about how people react and interact with each other. And so that is very much a first indicator of whether or not the culture is one that is healthy. A second, second indicator, and also a very important indicator, is the engagement of the employees. It's as simple as if you were to send out a survey to all of the employees, are they responding to it? Are they engaging with it? Are they asking questions? Are they filling out um, the survey? So the engagement of your employees is a true indicator of whether or not they're actually enjoying or committed to the company. Then finally, the third and most important uh, indicator when I do uh, cultural diagnostics as this is whether or not the leaders themselves are the right people to set as examples. So it could very well be um, doing a diagnostic amongst the leadership team. Do they all have the right narrative for the company? Are they all committed and passionate and want to lead by example in the right way for the company? So combined with all these three indicators, it is very quickly for us to know whether or not the culture of a company needs fixing per se, or it is in a good spot. Yeah, so that I really want to pick up on the third one, but I do have to ask you a question about the second one on engagement. So my experience has been when I've, let's say, even as a head of school and sending out a survey to our parent body or any scenario where I've ever used um, 
surveys or other forms of data collection tools to get feedback. Some people are responding because they're enthusiastic about what you're trying to do because mm -hmm. they're just sort of, because they've bought into the company similar to what I think you were describing. Or sometimes they want it because they're desperate for change and they want to see something very different. So how do you, how do you measure? Is, is it really all the same in some ways? Because at the end of the day, if people are responding because they want to see something different, that wouldn't be a sign of a healthy culture. Exactly. And that depends on how you would answer the question. So engagement also really comes down to, say, for example, if I were to split, uh, if I were to run a test on engagement firsthand, I would send a really important survey out that is supposed to drive changes, asking for feedback on maybe the culture, asking on feedback on whether or not you are being supported by the company as well as the leadership team. I can ask these really important questions and make this survey an important one. On the other hand, I can also at the same time throw a pizza party. If people only show up for the pizza party, they're being recognized for the wrong behavior. They're being rewarded for the wrong behaviors and the important ones are being discarded. And so therefore it's a really quick way of telling whether or not the employees are actually engaged in the right format or in the right way. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because when I first heard you say pizza party, I heard pity party, um, which, <laughs> may be, which may be relevant here as well. Um, so let's talk about that third piece when you talked about leaders as examples and the narrative and, and I wrote down modeling. You know, so let, let's let's understand that a little bit more because I think that's really, really important. I often quote John Maxwell as, you know, and others as well that talk about leadership as influence and and how mm -hmm. the leader plays a disproportionate role compared to, you know, the size of the company at large and not only creating the right culture, but really in setting the framework for basically everything that happens within the within the company at large. And so I'm curious to know what is your process? Not, not even, I mean, you certainly could talk about how you inquire among leaders about their readiness to lead, but what is your process if you see that people are misaligned or maybe even worse to say to them, hey guys, you know, it all, the buck ultimately stops with you and you need to show up here in a different kind of way if this is going to turn around. Yeah. So an upward feedback loop is actually very, very important. Um, many companies, even up to today, that I have found that they may have a very robust performance management uh, framework, yet they will omit upward feedback out because it's probably one of the most discomforting process anybody will have to go through. Giving sure. feedback to your manager means you may run the risk of being terminated if it wasn't received well enough or if, if it's all anonymized then you hardly really get concrete or enough context to these feedback. So there's a really tricky way of actually making sure that upward feedback is actually helpful and effective. Now, this is one of the biggest piece that I think in a lot of companies are missing. Without strong upward feedback that is helpful to drive the right kind of behavior and changes, then it's very difficult for us to even say, if, if, if after running a diagnostic, and we realize that there is a cultural problem and it starts from the leadership team and the leadership team needs to be fully collaborative to solve this problem. But if we don't get direct feedback around their behavior and the way that they're interacting with other people, including their peers as well, not just their subordinates, then how can we even be successful in solving this problem? So I think the real question really comes back to, 
are leaders in a position to first receive feedback to then drive changes. And this is one of those things that I actually really try and run workshops with leaders. But trust me when I say it's one of those workshops that are not as successful as I would like them to be. Oh, for sure. Because, I would imagine. Exactly. Because I'm, I'm sure you have seen leaders who are very open to changes. However, we also know that it's only a minority of them. So it really comes down to the leadership behavior. Yeah. I mean, look, I had it myself and had a school position where I wasn't by any means doing everything the way that it needed to be done. There were cultural changes and, and, and other challenges that, that came to fore when I took over um, without getting into all the details of my predecessor and some of the, the transitionary components of that. But I, what I think is not only are people afraid to um, report up and to share feedback, but I think many leaders don't necessarily have enough inner fortitude or resilience, uh, self-confidence to be able to ask for that feedback and to encourage it. You know, I think a lot of leaders are just very happy to get things going. They have a great concept, whatever it is. They may not have developed their people skills all that well. They may never have seen themselves as leaders, but they just need people around them to execute. And so all of a sudden they now have to become vulnerable. So I'm curious to know how you coach people through that process. Yeah. So really, you know, the, the key word there is trying to get them comfortable to get them vulnerable, right? Um, obviously it starts from the top. If say in an ideal scenario, we have a CEO of the company who is the top of all the leaders are willing to be vulnerable and comfortable in giving feedback as well as receiving feedback, then it immediately creates this leading by example. It's a modeling behavior for the rest of say the C-suite or the senior managers. And then eventually it will start to create this really healthy environment of people being able to give feedback to each other, not just per rank or hierarchy, but just being able to say to your own peer and go, hey, I didn't really appreciate the way you've spoken to me today. I would love for us to have a change of dynamic here. Would you be willing to hear me out? You know, these are very simple script that I could type, but not maybe not necessarily the easiest feedback for someone to give to their own peers. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, we really need leaders to behave the right way. And yes, it is very difficult. But as soon as we start to get really comfortable, but also ultimately understand that, the impact of not being an effective manager is just not having an effective team as well as an effective company. So the, the, the moment they realize that they are or will be part of the problem, I hope they realize that there needs to be a call of action here. And then hopefully part of the solution. For sure. Yeah, great. Okay, so last question of this segment, the one I ask everybody, and that is the biggest mistake, Sophie, that you have made in your life, your career, and what you've learned from it? Yeah, my biggest mistake, it took me a while to think about this, but my biggest mistake, I think, throughout both in life and career is not willing to ask for help when I actually needed it. I have, I am now a coach, but I have gone through some hoops and turbulence in my in my career when I realized that not asking for help was actually a lot more detrimental to my success not asking for help isn't a sign of um, strength. In fact, not knowing how to do the work and having to figure it all out by myself also isn't a sign of strength. 
And obviously, you know, it took me more than a decade to finally get there. But I hope this also, you know, I'm, I'm sure it will resonate with other people. But I also hope that, you know, people realize that it's totally okay to ask for help. Yeah, it totally resonates with me. I think I would have saved myself a lot of aggravation. Anyway, <laughs> let's transition now to rapid fire. Have a little bit of fun oh. with these. So I'm just curious, Sophie, what has been the worst mispronunciation of your last name? Ah, um, it's Thien. So because it's actually a silent H, um, you know, it's a silent H and most people would just call it Thien. But I have been called Sophia many, many times in ah, different okay. places. So that's another one. <laughs> Got it. It's so interesting. I'm hearing the, I'm hearing the, I guess it would be the British or Australian pronunciation because in, here in the US, we pronounce it as H. So that's just a different yeah. sound. But yeah, 100%. Okay, next. The coolest place where someone has purchased your book? Oh, um, this is actually from a book event that I was just about to launch and someone actually totally out of the blue reached out to me on Twitter and say, hey, I've seen your book event. I won't be able to come, but would you be willing to ship one out to me signed? So yeah, that was pretty cool. And where's that person? Uh, that person is in Berlin, Germany, and I'm oh, in London. Nice. Okay. And by the way, we didn't even mention it. What is the title of your book? It's called The Soul of Startup, The Untold Stories of How Founders Affect Culture. Sounds like a really interesting read. The biggest difference between living in Australia and the UK, because I know you were in Australia for quite Ooh. some time and have recently relocated. I'm, I'm yes, not looking for that's... a long, a long answer here that I'm sure <laughs> no. you could give me one. It's kind of funny because I, I, I have different workout um, videos that I, that I, that I partake in, so to speak. And one of them mm. called, I think body project, they're British, but they now live in Australia. So they kind of flipped the script from you. Uh, okay. The one major difference is the sun. God, there is so much rain in London. I could not even begin to describe. Yes. yes I'm well aware. <laughs> so much more sun, much hotter too, I would imagine. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, the worst advice you ever received. Oof, the worst advice. Um, let me see. Um, yeah, just the worst advice I've ever gotten is get shit done. Bulldoze everything over, forget about the emotions and just get shit done. Wow. Okay. And the last one, a productivity tip that helps you, since you're on the topic anyway, to get more done. Oh, yes. Wake up early. Uh, wake up early and try and get more work done. But definitely make sure you segregate your time so that you've got quality time with family, social, whatever you need to do, because productivity also means balance. OK, Sophie. So tell everyone on Lead to Succeed Nation where they can find you, reach out to you, get your book. Yeah, where, where are the, the main places they should be looking? Cool. So you can find me on my website. It's just www.sophieteen.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter. It's my first name, last name as well. And you can easily find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Okay. We'll be on the lookout. And finally, please leave us, Sophie, with one life lesson that we can really wrap up this great conversation with. Cool. One life lesson. Um, yes. Just enjoy what you're doing. If you're not saving lives, you should definitely enjoy the work that you're doing. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. I'm really glad we had this conversation and um, certainly learned a lot about culture, about leadership, about, you know, beginning with the end in mind. 
And um, I thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 